You're listening to Culture Matters, a podcast of the Village Church. This is Adam Griffin, and I'm here as always with my co-host, Adam Hawkins. Adam, how are you doing today? Doing pretty good, man. Good. Today, we're excited to be back, back podcasting again. Today, we have a heavy topic. We're going to be looking at the issue of sexual abuse, misconduct, this idea, and you've probably seen it in the media, the hashtag MeToo. It's a narrative that's all over our culture right now. Uh, when you're talking about people of power who have abused it, we've seen a lot of it in celebrity culture in particular, but it does not stop there and neither did it start there. It's it's really a pervasive issue. We'll be talking to a couple women today uh, who are going to help us think through this topic. So without further ado, let's get started. on TV, radio, everywhere. You can't miss it. Award shows. Uh, The allegations of sexual abuse, misconduct from people in power, particularly men in power, and these sweeping allegations and headlines led to a hashtag, hashtag MeToo, which gave a, a platform to anybody on social media to be able to say, this has also been my story that I have been abused, I have been assaulted. And so millions of women have shared their stories of being mistreated and abused by men. And it's literally become a national conversation about what a, what behavior is appropriate and what is not. It's brought in uh, questions of consent, certainly questions of power and manipulation. And today we're gonna try to get to the heart of the issue, trying to diagnose the problem, talk about ways the church can be an instrument of hope and change inside and out of that. The first conversation we're going to have is with our own Rachel Rosser. Hi, my name is Rachel Rosser. Rachel is a minister at the Plano campus, and she is also an expert in ministering to people with trauma. So the first thing we talked to Rachel about is the abuse of power. An idol of control. About sexual perversion, about sexual misconduct. Sexual abuse, sexual assault. The perversion of this sin and some of the sin behind some of the misconduct we're seeing. Yes, these things can be an abuse of power depending on the situation. So if you look at the sexual abuse of a child, right, obviously if this is done by an adult, done by an adolescent, there's going to be some physical size that's different. Uh, Also, there's going to be just some innate fear that's there. If you're looking at sexual harassment in a workplace, right, or, or at a church, if you're talking about a boss who's a harassing his employee, uh, he signs her checks, right? So there's fear of what happens, right, if I refuse this. And then if you look at even the situation with the pastor uh, on staff, right, if there is, um, he's been given the opportunity to shepherd and lead and love um, the sheep, right? There's an abuse of power here, especially how scripture is used, These things aren't new. If you look back in scripture, David did this with Bathsheba. He was king at the time when he issued for her uh, after he was looking and lusting upon her and sent for her. So that right there would be an abuse of power. So sexual perversion and sexual immorality uh, can be different than abuse of power. Not all sexual um, sin, right, is an abuse of power. So the sin that would be in the heart um, would really be um, an idol, this desire worship uh, of self, right? So you're 
more concerned with yourself than you are with ultimately God and with the other person that's in front of you. There is nothing new under the sun, right? There, this is not a new perversion in mankind, although we are seeing it manifest in different ways. I do wonder, uh, some of the things she talked about, about objectifying that I don't see in the public narrative, are some of the acceptable sins that lead to this? There is an objectifying and an exploitation uh, through pornography, through other things that our culture accepts and loves that has the same sense of like, since I have power to control these things, to desire things that then when I manifest them uh, with a coworker, then there's a line drawn. And I do wonder about that cultural morality where we have, this is okay, but this is not. If one leads to another or if they're connected to one another, but either way, that rootedness in the objectifying of someone else, exploiting of someone else, whether it's, she talked about physical or positional power that somebody might hold over them, and then the desire to work itself out sexually. Well, this is, I mean, this is a society that's untethered from any sense of morality, except for, it it is funny to watch the conversation unfold, especially in the media, or interesting, I should say. Um, There are some things that the, the media can not the media, but I guess the our culture uh, is is rather religious about. I guess mm-hmm. I'd say there are things that um, for a culture that wants to be so morally uh, relative, yeah. there are some things that everyone still agrees on are just reprehensible. Yeah, um, and I actually think that's good, and and I think it's good for Christians to to be able to enter those spaces uh, and provide clarity. Um, here, the reason I'm saying that is because uh, I do think culture is morally confused, and that is not in any way an excuse for people to behave the way that we've seen it unfold in the media. To go back a little bit to what Rachel was saying, um, I, I, it's really important to recognize, I just want to highlight it, it's really important to recognize that this is not simply um, – a matter of sexual perversion or sexual deviance. Yeah. That, um, and, and as abhorrent as that is, I think even more so this idea of wielding power over somebody, uh, of, of objectifying them, and, and let's be really clear what it means to objectify somebody. It means to dehumanize them and turn them into an object or an instrument for you to use for, for your own pleasure, for service, for your mm-hmm. self-service. And so, uh, which is, that's a really... Uh, it captures more. I think it captures the hardness of what's happening there. But just to say, I mean, think about how awful it is, right? It's not just that, um, like, these are people, yes, in the workplace, it's terrible. Yes, uh, these relationships are violated. But, like, think about how how many of these people are in politics. These are the leaders of our of our country and free world and senators. I'm thinking about the race in Alabama that just took place with that senator who was accused of so many different things or the, the potential senator or whatever. I mean, just like these are people who of people of influence who we're supposed to trust. Same with pastors. How heartbreaking is that, right? The idea that this exists in the church. So I think two things again, just to highlight from Rachel is that this, this, there is something deeper going on. It has to do with power and dehumanization. And secondly, uh, I think um, the idea that this is ubiquitous. It doesn't just exist in Hollywood right. or doesn't just exist in internet pornography. It exists in the church. It exists in 
any positions of power. It exists in institutions where there are imbalances. I mean, it's everywhere, yeah. frankly. I think what you're talking, when you say imbalance there at the end, that's exactly where that pops in my head is that even regardless of what you believe about God, I think our culture sees imbalance as injustice. And so that is just on full display in this. Yeah. So I think that's also helpful to transition us next. We talked to Rachel also about at what point does this come back to our culture's warped view of intimacy and sexuality in general? There are repercussions uh, in the way that sexuality is portrayed in our culture. Uh, When you continue to demoralize sex and you continue to not make it um, what God has created it for, there are consequences. Um, So it just becomes a really confusing landscape in which people are trying to understand um, sexuality and intimacy especially when they're not going back to, you know, Genesis 2 and how the Lord designed intimacy and sexuality in the first place. What she's pointing out there is the hypocrisy in our culture. And this is not to say like, it's them. No, this is us. This is all of us to say in some places, this is okay, or this leads to this. But at the same time, I do think it's important here to mention too, and I'm sure you'd agree with this, Adam, like as confusing as it is, no amount of confusion is an excuse to say like, hey, this is uh, confusing because you're wearing that or you dress that way or right. you acted like this or or I, we see this in movies. And so it doesn't justify behavior, but you can understand why culturally some people can rightly point out the hypocrisy of the celebrity culture that says, well, you, you do this movie, but you feel bad about that. And whether or not that's hypocrisy or whether it's it, you're confusing my art for my personhood. Yes, I think what's difficult in this conversation is there are individual actors and there are institutional actors, right? Um, and and we have to address those things seriously. But it's also a cultural conversation. And so culturally, we're super confused about sex and sexuality and how it's portrayed. We're confused about power and what power is supposed to look like, authority, all these kind of things in the culture itself, morality, right? But... At the same time, that does not excuse what's happening when yeah. an individual treats another individual this way, when an institution uh, aids individuals in their dehumanization of, of vulnerable people or people in general, right? So I, I think it's important to point that out. But yeah, I, I agree with Rachel's comment. I, I do think it's really confusing. And again, this is an area where I think Christians especially um, have – it's it's almost to me it's more um, – there is a sense in which when this happens in Christian circles, and when I say this, when sexual assault, sexual harassment, and, and uh, abuses of power happen within the church towards its members or towards anybody else, uh, there's a sense in which it's like you should know better than this because we, we don't exist in a morally confused... Obviously, we're part of culture. And so, yes, we're, we're drinking in sort of the, the, the cultural confusion that's happening. But we have a story that's told about sex, and it's a really beautiful story. And we have a story about what it looks like for two individuals to become one flesh and what that's supposed to yes. look like. And so just the idea that a person in power in the church... yeah who knows what that story is would then act in another way. It's almost, it's almost like a doubling down of 
depravity and tragedy. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I was just thinking the exact same yeah. thing, that we have a better story for this, for purity and sexuality. And we, we can see in this the reason the Lord would warn us against these things. That's right. And we also have the different story for power and the way it's supposed to be wielded, where yes. even Christ would say, well, you see, like, these Gentile leaders, they'll use their power like this, but you, you are supposed to be a servant. That's right. You serve for the sake of those who follow you. Yeah. They do not, they're not at... They're not there to serve you. You are yeah. there to serve them. That's why you lead. And that's uh, that can be taken down to the level of husband, parent, I mean, even older physical power, whatever it is. That you have strength for those who want to be strong, and you have wisdom for those who want to be wise, and that's the way the Lord's created us to lead. So I do want to come back to the Christian church, the what we need to do there, where we've missed it, what we need to address there. But before we get that, let's let's not lose some some of these thoughts about media. And one of the other people we talked to, in fact, our producer David Roark sat down with uh, Alyssa, Alyssa Wilkinson. Wilkinson. She is the film critic at Vox, but she is much more than a film critic. She is a great mind and great writer when it comes to just culture in general and especially faith and culture. And she's been doing this for a really long time. So just grateful to to have her here. Alyssa, do you think that this idea of, you know, sexual abuse and sexual um, allegations versus different individuals, specifically men in power, um, this has any ties to what has been sort of uh, the broader narrative of, of sexuality and the sexual revolution? You know, for a long time, women, if we think about maybe Mad Men, for instance, right, which actually was a show that uh, took on this issue a lot, um, you know, women have always, always been subjected to sexual predators. You know, the as oldest, the, the you know the oldest story in the book, um, and so it's not like this behavior wasn't happening. Um, but it is true that the feeling that um, it's okay to come forward and talk about it and actually be believed, I think, might actually be indirectly related to the sexual revolution. It just took decades for us to get to a point, and you know, very recently where that. Um, where that actually had some fruit attached to it. And, I mean, you could really see that as the Weinstein story was being reported. Uh, that was only a few months ago. Um, and yet, you know, a lot of people said they'd been, everybody had known about this for years, perhaps, but there wasn't the culture in which um, there were consequences for the kind of behavior that a person like Harvey Weinstein engaged in. Um, and, you know, we, we see that all the time. We see it in churches. We see it in political parties. We see it in all of these different places. So I think the big shift can be drawn, uh, a line can be drawn between this big shift to the sexual revolution, um, but it's in a couple of different ways, some of which might be better and some of which might be more detrimental to people. Do you think that media has been a part of this problem? Um, You know, I think you're, you're seeing all over social media, and I know sometimes it can be really annoying the way that people frame it. You know, everyone's very quick to just call Hollywood hypocritical, you know, to, you know that all these people are coming out and, you know, and making this, you know, really strong stand, which is good and right, you know, about women having voices and calling things for what they are and the whole Me Too. Yet I think that when people think about some of the movies and the shows and the the products that come out of Hollywood, it seems like some of those can be just as harmful, uh, just as objectifying, you know, to women. So I'm curious, do you think that media has kind of played into this at all, the problem? Yeah, I, I actually don't think anyone who is speaking up would deny that either. I mean, there's there's a pretty good reason that a lot of the women who have kind of joined forces with this Time's Up movement and these, you know, are trying to make changes in the system. Um, they're powerful and mostly actresses who um, have been doing this, and there's a reason. It's because they've experienced 
the result of working in a an industry that still is dominated by a certain breed of um, powerful white guy for the most part. Um, you know, the very people who were assaulting and victimizing people were the ones making the big decisions in the industry. And they also are the ones who often determine what gets funded, what gets greenlit, what kind of movies are going to get made. And so a lot of people have been looking back at films and saying things like, oh, uh, you know, we, here we see an objectification of women. Okay, who directed this movie? Who paid for it? Well, there's, you know, there's a reason that um, some of these things are so prevalent. Um, and I do think, you know, if you just, and this may seem counterintuitive to people who don't have to watch every movie for their job, but if you actually look at film over the past 10 years, there's actually been a drop-off of that kind of behavior. Um, uh, in films, there's been a drop-off, particularly of um, sexual uh, content and also of nudity in in mainstream film um, over the past decade or so. And it's not just because it's not because people are less interested in sex. Um, it's because there's less of an appetite for it um, culturally uh, for seeing that kind of thing on screen than there I think there used to be and some of that is due to different people making decisions um, in Hollywood. The situation that we find ourselves in now is that um, many films and TV shows have normalized a kind of behavior, um, made it seem like it was normal for people and so the only scripts we have when confronted with um, someone who wants to you know, do something to a woman or asks her or kind of coaxes her into something, those scripts have all been dictated um, by entertainment that largely was created in some part or at least greenlit by the same people who, who have been abusive. Um, you know, the hope is that as more um, kinds of people, um, women, uh, people from maybe marginalized communities are finding more voice in the industry that the scripts will start to change um, and that we might start to see the world in a different way. But, it, you know, it's certainly no secret to anyone that um, Hollywood's films have operated on the concept of the male gaze and sort of what men wanted to see from women on screen. Um, and those things are slow to change. I think that's fascinating what she has to say about the sexualized entertainment industry. And I had never heard that, that she sees a trend down in nudity and sex on the screen. And I, I, I mean, I have a couple thoughts about that. I, I am wondering if film changes, does culture change or is culture changing change film? And is it chicken egg or, or is there really less of a sexual culture because we see less nudity or is it, um, is it just indicative of producers changing? Yeah, I think it's interesting. This question is really important. And again, I think the nuance needs to be, um, it would cheapen sexual assault to blame it on film, right? Yeah. Just like the way if you were to blame violence and gun violence and all these kind of things, if you just say, well, it's media's fault, yeah. right? Video it cheapens games did it. it. It cheapens it, yeah. Yep. Uh, the reason that these things happen is because sin, right? This is sin in the human heart. We live in a broken world. Um, now, I think the question you're asking is really interesting about like, is is film actually um, 
is it is it downstream from culture or is film in informing culture and you know whenever we ask these chicken and egg questions i think they're reinforcing each other i, I that's my take and i'm not an expert but i just I, I feel like that's my take i would say one thing i find interesting though is i think the way we think about sex has changed at an incredibly fast pace sex doesn't mean nudity anymore it means so much more now we're told sex is who you are it's identity it's identity and so it's not necessarily about an act or an action and so you're not going to see as much a sexual act or action on screen what you're going to see is my sex is who i am and i'm going to live that out uh also you've got to think about technology and the way that it's invaded everything i mean like you used when you wanted to date somebody you had to talk to them and find out who they were right yeah. now it's just a text message or a tinder swipe or this or that right and so it's so transactional yeah that impersonal the, it's impersonal and transactional the sex act itself is that way yeah and so because in film i think part of what we're trying to do is is incite emotion and pull out our heartstrings and tell a story that because sex is almost to say it's sanitized what i more mean by that is it's not it's look the act itself is not even looked at as important anymore yeah it, it's it's just this thing you do it's a transaction it's part of this life you live and all these kind of things it's not right obviously it's not because we're seeing the fallout all over the place but in media that's sort of how it's portrayed and that's how people are thinking about it and so it's not a surprise to me that nudity in the sex act itself is being taken out of the picture but what's being elevated is sex as identity and i yeah. think we feel that as a culture You talked about the the last ten years really seeing a drop off, and just in this in these last few years especially, I th I can think of a lot of examples. But what what are some good movies and TV shows that you feel like are really, in many ways, swinging the pendulum the other way and doing just the opposite and um, maybe um, telling a different narrative and and putting women in power and putting women in lead roles? What, what does anything stand out for you in particular? Yeah, I mean, if we look at stuff from even the last year, it's been interesting to see, um, you know, I, I guess how uh, there has been a creep towards a seismic shift in the industry. So it's still very small. There still aren't a lot of women working in Hollywood. It's still a really difficult place to work if you're a woman and all of those things still being true. I mean, a lot of people would point to a film like Wonder Woman as an example of change. Um, you know, it's a film where there are a lot of powerful, beautiful women in this film, and yet you can feel the difference almost instantly uh, in how they're shot. I mean, it's actually quite moving as a woman to watch that the first half hour of that film and feel like you're watching. You didn't even realize how you were expecting to be watching this movie. Um, and so, and you know, it's, it's empowering and all of those things, but it's also got a central character who's like an entire, she's a whole entire human person. She has, well, she's not human. But, you know, she, she has feelings, she has thoughts, she has, um, you know, conflicts, she has empathy, she wants good. Uh, there's all these things that make her into a fully rounded human being, and it doesn't diminish the male characters in the film at all, um, but it does add a dimension of humanity, rehumanizes, I think, characters who too often on screen are very, very one-dimensional. Um, I'm also thinking, like, my very favorite film of the year was Lady Bird, and it's not the first time I've ever seen, you know, a great film about a teenage girl, um, but it is one of the first ones I saw where the teenage girl 
is a fully rounded, complicated human being, and so is her mother. Um, and those roles are outstanding, well written, directed, um, you know, by a female director, um, which isn't necessary but certainly helps. Um, and that I think is like a very empathetic movie as well. That really is about coming to terms with who you are, and um, but it really gets something right about how women act around one another that isn't catty. It isn't sort of this um, mean girls paradigm, uh, which is a film I love, but that paradigm shows up all the time as, oh, this must be how women act around one another. And it's just not true. Um, And I've just come from Sundance, and I saw a bunch of films like that as well while I was there um, that really have a sense of women as people and not just as characters in a way that I think men have generally been accustomed to seeing themselves on screen. Um, one big film that came out of Sundance that HBO acquired and um, will premiere on on HBO was uh, The Tale, which stars uh, Laura Dern as a woman um, very much modeled on the director and writer of the movie who realizes that a relationship that she's always thought about as a relationship that she had as a 13-year-old with her 40-year-old running coach, you know, wasn't actually a relationship <laughs> at all. And so coming to... Uh, understand that you know she was actually taken advantage of um and coming to understand that as an adult is very difficult for her because she's not sure whether to think about herself as a victim or a survivor or whether it's something else um and that's a really powerful film um that i think a lot of people will find challenging and it's the kind of story i think we need more of if we really want to think about these things and and think about the me too movement through a bigger more complex lens Abuse of power, refusal to admit sin in its fullness, and grasping authority with clenched fists have no place in God's kingdom. His is an economy of intertwined justice and grace, one that looks sin in the face and is repelled by it, not minimizing its grotesque nature, but covering it with true grace. True grace does not thinly veil gross moral failure and allow those who commit it to continue wielding power, but offers discipline, discipleship, care, wise counsel and friendship as means of walking with a person who has fallen. As Christians navigating a culture that has long repressed the stories of the abused, our primary motivation must be to proclaim liberty to the captives by bearing witness to their stories and holding space for their healing processes. These processes may or may not include the opportunity or ability to forgive as Megan Gans forgave Dan Harmon. Additionally, our goal cannot be a restoration to picture-perfect tranquility or power. The idea that restoration means putting a sexual predator back in the pulpit is a notion of the empire, which tells us that power is the highest good, and in order to be whole, we must regain any power we've lost. This is not the way of God's kingdom. By removing unfaithful people and those who seek to protect their power, we not only demonstrate true love and compassion for their victims, but for the perpetrators themselves. The most gracious thing that could be offered to abusers of spiritual authority is the opportunity to be loved, discipled, and part of a community in which they do not hold any positional power. 
The kingdom says that we restore to family, not position. We offer forgiveness, not by clapping for vague apologies, but by walking alongside the repentant. And we believe God's grace is deep enough for the most tragic of failures, finding that it often manifests in a life quietly bearing fruit in keeping with repentance, no pulpits in sight. That was a reading from Abby Perry, who wrote a tremendous article called The Church Needs a Masterclass and How to Apologize for Sexual Assault. Uh, That's available to you on Christ and Pop Culture. Let's talk a little bit more about what do we think the church has done wrong and can do going forward. So let's go back to our dear friend, Rachel, and hear what she thinks about where has the church missed the mark? What can the church do? So I think that there are some ways that the church is actually responding rightly. Um, The issue in America is one in four women are typically sexually abused uh, before the age of 18. That number jumps as they enter into college and enter into the workplace. Uh, And that's just with sexual assault and sexual abuse. Um, Those statistics don't actually include sexual harassment. Um, So there are churches, I know our church is one, where we provide um, care and counsel and recovery uh, for women uh, that have been affected by sexual assault and sexual abuse. Um, I think more can be done specifically uh, in the church to get at the root issue of how um, men and women see each other and to look at like the gender concepts um, that we have and that we hold individually. I think there is still a pervasive issue of pornography uh, that affects not only our men, but our women uh, and how uh, people relate as far as emotional and sexual intimacy um, and how, again, in that, how that warps uh, one's mind and how, again, people continue to be objectified. And so I think a little bit more can be done. I do know that we're doing things as far as with men and trying to talk with them about this. And then with the women, making sure that the church is a safe place for them to come and confess. This is a safe place of, hey, this happened to me, uh, where they're not met with quick solutions, uh, where Obviously, um, there are people there that are willing to listen, walk alongside them, uh, and where we're not protecting the wrong person. Oftentimes, this happens, especially uh, if the person who was the offender in a church, right, is protected by a group of people um, instead of uh, the victim being believed. So we have to be really careful not to protect the wrong person in this situation. Uh, And so churches can be a solution by starting at a young age and teaching kids what um, gospel-centered sexuality looks like, uh, what God designed male and female to be, um, how we're to uh, complement one another, how we're to enjoy each other, um, and how we're not to treat others as objects. Uh, These are things that you can be doing in your home, that the church can be doing uh, on Sundays, and really looking at how Jesus interacts um, with both men and women. They have a redeemer who can sympathize uh, with abuse. I mean, there's a lot to unpack there, but for just a second, Adam, she mentioned one thing in there. I'd love to hear you talk about this. She said, we don't want to offer people quick solutions. Talk to me a little bit about that. What does she, what does she mean? The church should not offer quick solutions. Yeah, I think Rachel's so good at sort of, again, like you said, there's so much there. I think um, the quick solutions 
that she's talking about would be to have somebody come in and say they're hurting. Mm-hmm. And, and instead of realizing that you need to provide a safe place for somebody to be able to work through uh, their feelings um, and, and uh, uh, to be met with, um, with really a ministry of presence that just says, I, I believe you and I'm going to sit and I'm going to listen to you. I think the quick solutions she's talking about are things like, okay, let's do fact gathering. I'm going to go, we're going to go and find out whoever and, hey, what did you say and what really happened? And then forcing them in a room together to then confront one another and having the, you know, all those kind of re-traumatizing things that can happen. You know, so often what happens with a a victim of, of, um, of sexual abuse within the church is the church goes, well, we're a place of reconciliation. We're ministers of reconciliation. Right. So let's work immediately towards reconciliation. Right. Uh, and, and that is just so dangerous because what you forced, what, what so often occurs is you're, you're forcing the, the vulnerable person, the victim to then confront in a very unsafe way um, the, the perpetrator uh, and, and again, you know, one thing we haven't talked about is just how multifaceted this issue is. It's not simply moral. It's not simply sexual. There's also a legal aspect. Yeah. And so often what needs to happen is the work of the church may be um, behind the scenes as somebody's being prosecuted and goes to jail for a very long time. Right. Uh, and so again, that's another thing where it's like, hey, we churches will say we don't want this to enter the courts. Let's stay out of the the legal processes. And and so it what happens is exactly what Rachel said. We end up protecting the wrong people. We yeah. end up forcing narratives and trying to turn things into gospel stories where that's not occurring. You know, does yeah. that make sense? Oh, what I'm, I'm totally with you. I think there's such a temptation. I've seen this over and over again in myself and particularly in young pastors when you're confronted with a circumstance that is so difficult for someone. You as a pastor start to scramble with what do I need to do? And you start to confuse your role with the role of the police. Yeah. You start to confuse your role with uh, the role of the the immediate reconciler, the lawyer, whoever. And you yeah. say, man, how am I this person's pastor? Yes. My job is not right now to go, well, let's, I'm going to throw a lot of cynicism and doubt on your story yep. until they hear the rest. And yet we could we could spend all day uh, pulling apart false accusations and how that affects this of and course. how it's detrimental to the actual victims and certainly uh, detrimental to a person who has not perpetrated anything but has been falsely accused. And fact-finding is such an immediate, like a knee-jerk reaction totally. uh, for so many people as opposed to saying, as this minister, as a counselor, as just a human being who cares to say, how do I, for a second, take a breath, not try to get to a solution right now, but try to help this person grieve something awful they have just shared with me. Yes. Yeah. And I think uh, obviously the church, me specifically, Adam, I'm sure the same for you, we can all grow in this. We can be better empathizers, better pastors, and better shepherds by uh, providing more compassion than quick solutions. Obviously, we don't like the way things are right now. I, I love that abuse is not as secret, it seems, as it used to be. I'm, I love that some of that has come to the surface, not because I want to know what's happened, because I want victims to be cared for who felt like they had no voice to do so. You think of the gymnasts who, who said for years, this is happening to us, and it seemed yep. like no one was listening. Those stories coming to the surface and people being listened to is really great, but we want these things to change. We want to see them prevented. We want to see people educated. We want to see 
see sin put to death. So we're going to talk to Rachel as we conclude a little bit about what, what kind of changes could we see do we want to see in the world? If we want to see the change in our world, what needs to happen? Uh, it needs to move from more than just uh, a hashtag movement. Uh, we need to see people honestly confessing their sins, not sanitizing them or whitewashing them. The thing that's so beautiful about Paul in the scriptures is he clearly states who he was before God came and saved him, right? There's no hiding his sins. And so when we look in situations when there's been misuse of power, when there's been sexual abuse, sexual assault, um, not trying to um, sanitize it, minimize it, just calling it calling it what it is. Um, and that only comes when the Lord moves in your heart and there's true godly sorrow over your sin when you see what the Lord has done for you. And this isn't an American problem. This is a world problem. And so in the world, there is, um, in South Africa, a woman has more uh, there's a 28% chance that she would be raped, which is higher than their uh, literacy rates. And so that means that a woman has a more chance to be raped than she does to actually learn how to read. There are shame honor killings all over the Middle East, um, specifically uh, for women that are in relationships. Maybe the men aren't affected, but the women are. Um, even American women, if they were to go to Saudi Arabia, obviously they can't drive there. Um, so there are concepts of just gender globally that impact um, the way that we relate. And so I think as a church, we can do a great job of uh, being ones to step out when we have wronged um, others. We should be the first uh, to confess and to ask for forgiveness. Um, and then we should be a safe place uh, for those who have experienced this sin. Adam, before we conclude, any final thoughts from you on this topic or on maybe uh, just wisdom for people listening? Man, I just, um, I think this topic in particular just, it pulls at my pastoral heartstrings. Amen. And so um, I can't help but think about the people listening who have, I mean, we just heard the statistic from Rachel, one in four that increases to one in three in college, and then that doesn't even include uh, sexual harassment. So I just... Um, it, I want people to know who are listening, uh, that, um, there is help for you. There is, um, there are safe spaces for you. And my prayer is that the church would be that place. And so, uh, yeah, it's a multifaceted and complex issue. Um, and, uh, uh, I, I, and I know we are dedicated to, um, fighting for those who have, who've been hurt. So, yeah. Amen. Yeah, I do think it is a sensitive issue. I'd love for us to be part of the solution, both for the yeah. sake of those victims being a voice of advocacy, but also as a place that teaches the world what the Lord has taught us and delight in his law to say this is why he's warned us against these things. God is not against our joy, but for our joy. Mm. What we see in Jesus Christ, as we conclude, this is what we see in Jesus, is, a, is the man who was without sin looks into the eyes of the woman who is... Uh, who has been dragged out in her shame 
And honestly, when, the more we talk about culture, and I feel like we get to this on every episode, we talk about our response to the brokenness of culture seems to be often a sinful response of guilt, shame, yeah. fear. And so if our response in us is guilt, shame, fear, I don't want to cast more guilt, shame, and fear by saying like, you shouldn't feel that way, change that. Yeah. But let me cast on you the gospel that says the gospel never throws guilt shame and fear as the response to you being victimized or of you perpetrating, of you participating in something that the Lord has warned us against. Even the woman that was caught in adultery who is guilty is brought before him in her shame, fear, and guilt. And he says, the one without sin throw the first stone, and he is the only one standing there without sin. Mm. He's the only one who could rightly stand up and say, I do condemn you because I am without sin. But instead he he looks at this woman and he says, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. And so that's the warning for all of us who are caught in sins where all of us objectify other people to an extent. That's right. And so how do we put that to death in us? Many of us have been victims of that objectification in other people. So how do we bring that to the light so that we might receive care? And how do we as the church be those responders who don't offer quick solutions, but offer the gospel? that fights back, pushes back fear, shame, guilt, and offers instead the love of Christ. So I pray that our churches, those pastors listening, and our church, the Villa Church, would increasingly learn in this topic and hear from those who are experts in it so that we might be better prepared to address these things in our culture. If you've heard anything today uh, that struck a chord with you, if you were a victim of abuse, if you are suffering from hurts that just seem insurmountable, uh, we want you to know that there is help for you. And so if you're local, uh, we have a program we, we call Recovery, and that is a safe space for you uh, to come to our campus, to come to our church, uh, and to receive help and love and care. For those of you who aren't local, we'd encourage you to reach out to somebody at your local church, or we'll have information for you in our show notes. If there's anything you heard on the show that you'd like to know more about, you can find details on our website, tvcresources.net. Today's episode was produced by David Roark and edited and mixed by our own Chris Starrett. On our next episode, we'll be talking more with David, our producer, and with Matt Chandler about their new book, Take Heart. So I'm looking forward to that, and we will see you next time. God bless.